This is a conversation with Eli Friedman of Cornell University. Our conversation centers around the recent arrest and incarceration of delivery driver and labor organizer Meng Zhu. We discuss what organizing Meng Zhu was doing, why the party viewed him as such a threat, and how international listeners can help build solidarity to try and secure his release. Wrapped around this, we'll also be discussing China's gig economy and why a government that claims to be communist has allowed one of the most rapacious, predatory, and violent systems of capitalism, the gig economy, to become so integral to China's economic development and future. It's a fascinating conversation that I hope helps shine a light on what China is and isn't and how capitalism, not communism, is the main governing principle of the PRC and the Communist Party of China. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the arts of travel. We have fascinating conversations with a variety of academics, artists, and organizers. We just interviewed a protester on the ground in Myanmar. And you can go to our website, Asia Art Tours. We have great print interviews on China, Southeast Asia, and India on our website. I would highly recommend reading our two-part interview with the radical labor collective Chuang for more about labor, capitalism, and the lives of workers in China. Here's my conversation now with Eli Friedman on Meng Zhu, the imprisoned labor organizer and former delivery driver, and how we can help try and secure his release. My name is Eli Friedman. Uh, I teach at Cornell University in the United States. Uh, I'm a scholar of labor and urbanization in China. Just to discuss why I'm talking to you, and and I think maybe Darren Byler, this is a meta issue, uh, someone I deeply respect. But when Darren's doing interviews, when you're doing interviews, Darren for Xinjiang, you on labor issues in China, you were talking to me a bit off mic. It's important to note the meta issue there is that certain people can speak safely and certain people can't. And I I don't think that's very well understood. I think there's a lot of innuendos that people can make about that. Could you explain a little bit about when we're discussing sensitive issues, at least in terms of labor, your expertise in China, what are the actual dangers if someone from China just wanted to come on without anonymity and talk to me in English or Mandarin about uh, Mengju? Why, Why are you having to do this and why is it safe for you, whereas it might not be safe for someone in China to do so? I mean, you know, I really appreciate the question and I really appreciate you having me on the show. Um, this is an issue that I've thought a lot about over the years. Um, you know, I've been studying Chinese labor issues and migrant labor in China for a very long time, um, you know, more than 15 years at this point. It's, it, these are issues that I really care a lot about. Um, so, so I'm, I'm quite committed to it, um, but there's oftentimes this kind of uneasy sense that, you know, maybe I'm not precisely the right person to be speaking about these issues. Um, you know, I'm a white guy in the United States. I teach at a fancy you know, private school and, um, and I'm, I'm removed from the front lines of struggle um, 
both geographically being in the United States and also uh, socially um, uh, given who I am and, and what I do for work. That being said, there's a real problem, which is that the people who are on the front lines face all kinds of constraints on their capacity to speak about these issues. So concretely with the case of Mengju, well, obviously he's in jail now, so he can't speak on, this, on these issues, but the people around him, including some of his colleagues who've been involved in some of the initiatives uh, that he's taken on in China, um, as well as his relatives uh, who've gotten involved in trying to get him uh, out of jail, uh, you know, they've all been visited by security uh, and particularly the ones, his, his family members, some of whom have spoken with journalists, including foreign journalists, you know, they've been visited and, and told you can't do this, right? And so for them to speak uh, puts them at great risk. And it's not just them, you know, even, uh, even Chinese people who might be out of the country who are studying um, internationally uh, to appear on a show like this and, and to speak and to sort of identify themselves um, it just puts them at great risk. The Chinese state has, you know, all kinds of uh, all kinds of techniques uh, at their disposal to put pressure on people, um, to put pressure on their family members. Um, and so, what that means is that oftentimes you have people who are somewhat removed from it, like myself, uh, who are the only ones who are, who are really at liberty uh, to discuss it. Um, and it's you know it's an unfortunate situation. Obviously, workers should be allowed uh, to speak for themselves. Um, but, you know, we really, in a context where uh, workers and other sort of social activists within China face such uh, serious threats, we really do have to think about what solidarity means in that context. Uh, and this is something that I've wrestled with a lot, um, you know, recently, but, but, but for many years. Um, what does it mean to engage in solidarity work and to speak about things that are happening in another country far away? Um, without necessarily having, you know, those people's permission. Um, it's a complicated issue, uh, but I think it's one that needs to be acknowledged. And this is something you see from sort of more the, uh, one of the new lines of attack from tankies uh, on, uh, at least online. Um, this is something I think you, in terms of identity politics, it's last dying thrashes. I think before we move to a more maroon, intersectional sort of abolitionist iteration of, of what the left may turn into. You do hear this critique a lot, and I do think it's important to acknowledge, at least for people I don't think are careerists or are doing this for fame, the reason why um, white men are, are you know talking about things like Myanmar or China is because um, partially because of white privilege, but also because they are removed enough that there there's not the same risk as a citizen of Myanmar or as a citizen of China in speaking directly uh, on these issues. And that's something I don't think is talked about enough. It's complicated, obviously, and there are a lot of people who, who should shut up. <laughs> that's part of the complication. But I, I, don't, I don't think that point is, is articulated or it's something we're all going to need to, I think, think about more as we all become, I think, more internationalist uh, in, our, in our thinking and in our solidarity. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and as, you know, there are whole you know, groups of people uh, who are who are systematically prevented from speaking, right? So, you know, you can sort of stop at the like, there's the cheap shot of like, oh, this is a white guy. I don't like his politics. I'm just going to like point out that he's white and, you know, not sort of actually engage in what's going on. Um, you know, there's like the more complicated thing, which is to look at like who is being prevented from speaking on this issue. 
And if we're if we're looking at the, the the question of labor politics in China, I'm sure there's parallel sorts of problems going on in Myanmar. Uh, I'm less familiar with it, um, but the Chinese working class as a whole is being prevented from speaking about their situation. And and you know we can get into it a little bit with with the Mengju case. I think one of the things that that this really clarifies is the extent to which the state is intent on preventing the emergence of kind of a labor leadership who could potentially speak in a more robust and, and I think kind of politically, um, you know, incisive way about, about the conditions of workers. Like the state is, is just categorically opposed to that kind of a person emerging, right? And so that leaves us in this situation where there is in fact this kind of social distance between the social group in, in question and the person who's speaking about it. And, you know, I mean, this is me just trying to be sort of reflexive here and we don't need to kind of harp on the issue, but, but I do think it's, it, it's a really important uh, point, you know, uh, given, given the fact that there are certain states, including the Chinese state, including, of course, you know, the, 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 the military in Myanmar who, who are trying to prevent those, those folks from having their own voice. John Brown would have been an internationalist. That's my position. Closing um, this, I want to turn to our, our last conversation where we talked about the labor organizer, uh, Xiangzi, and without revealing anything that would be, that could expose Xiangzi to any carceral um, violence from the Chinese state, could you discuss a little bit about um, an update on his case and anything that you learned from that experience of, of trying to organize and advocate for Xiangzi's uh, freedom that we can now apply or use as a useful lens when we talk about Meng Zhu and his organizing. Um, you know, thanks for asking. I, I really appreciate it, and really appreciate uh, you know you bringing me on the show last to talk about it. Um, you know, Xiangzi. I mean, for me, it was just deeply personal because he's a guy that I'm, I'm very close with. He's he's close with my family, um, and I, I've known him for many years. And he's a really sort of um, focused uh, as a um, labor activist who's got really sort of sharp political views. Um, so, you know, it was, it was really tough. One of the advantages that he had was that he was is an internationalist, had deeply engaged with the labor movement um, and other social activists in the United States, in Europe, in Hong Kong, um, other places in Asia as well. He spent time in Taiwan. Uh, and and so he he had these these networks to mobilize, and this is actually a really sharp difference between between Xiangzi and Mengju. He had these international networks to mobilize, and so you know when he got put in jail, we kind of snapped into action. Um, you know, there's people writing letters. There were semi-powerful institutions. I mean, you know, way 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 down uh, the list of powerful institutions, but like you know unions. Um, in, in the United States, and I believe in Europe, that we're, we're kind of weighing in on the case and calling for his release. You know, at the end of the day, it, it's impossible to know um, sort of what works and what doesn't. We do know he was released from jail, right? So that's, that's the happy news. Uh, it, it's always, every time we face one of these cases, there's always a debate among the international network, which is, does mobile, mobilizing, does drawing attention to this case bring more risk for the person uh, who's been, uh, you know, disappeared or arrested or charged. Um, and, and I think that, you know, my position, um, it's basically been consistent over the last few years. And I, I, I can't say that I have like a strong empirical basis to sort of back this up, but I just feel like, like doing nothing is 
just can't be the right answer, right? I mean, in part because it's too shameful to just kind of, you know, take it and sort of say, okay, well, you know, we're just gonna, you know, quietly hope that that the the Chinese government comes to the right answer. Um, but uh, but but I think that you know, I think that we have to try to do something, and we did in the case of Xiangzi. Whether or not that actually had any impact on uh, on the development of his case, of course, is impossible to know. They will never tell you. Um, but he is out. Uh, and so, you know, we, the, the sort of the folks that I've been organizing with around uh, Mengju, we, we've been having the same sorts of conversations. We don't know the answer, right? And, and, and everyone's different. Every case is different. Internal politics are, you know, in a constant state of uh, flux in China as they are uh, everywhere. Um, so we'll have to see what happens uh, this time. Um, but again, in that particular case, he, he's out and that is, uh, that is good news. When you stop and think about the Communist Party, you know, you read, let's say you go on Twitter and you read Tanky accounts for 10 minutes, and then you stop and think and go, well, wait a minute, if this is a Communist Party, why have they allowed, and not just allowed, in, in the case of Li Keqiang, say this is probably essential to the growth of the Chinese economy, why would a Communist Party allow the most precarious, predatory, atomized, violent uh, forms of labor uh, in recent history in the form of the quote-unquote gig economy. And this contradiction, I think, is, is absurd. I'm smiling out of disgust. Um, I abhor the gig economy. But I'm wondering, um, with a level head, you'd, I, I don't require my guests to share my distaste for anything, but could you discuss a bit about this what I find to be such a violent and bizarre contradiction. Why is a party that is doubling and tripling down on Marxist language and, you know, loyalty to the party uh, under a Xi Jinping openly embracing what I see as one of the most sort of violent and um, alienating forms of labor in, in, in modern existence in, in the gig economy? It's, it's a great question. It's a really big question. Let me just start with the sort of the last point um, about the reference to this being a, a political party that is doubling down on Marxism, that continually refers to themselves as socialist. You know, I, I oftentimes use a kind of a rough and, and totally imperfect analogy to talk about uh, this this sort of idea of socialism in China, you know, if you look at the United States, like the the sort of the political leaders of the United States, when they talk about democracy, it's kind of it it's more or less the same thing, right? So, like at some level, you have this political leadership in the American case that like thinks like we believe in democracy. This is just what Americans do, but they don't think that deeply about it. They're not that invested in like really working through like, what does it mean to have, you know, popular forms of sovereignty? Like, how are we constantly sort of pushing the envelope towards, you know, more kind of democratic forms of rule in all spheres of life and economic spheres, you know, within, within the family, like, you know, Joe Biden doesn't care about that. Obviously, Donald Trump was didn't care about that. But they still sort of repeat this thing over and over again, like we're a democratic country, we believe in democracy. And I, th I think it's not that different, you know, for, for the Communist Party, like, they're, they're a nominally Marxist party. They believe in socialism. Socialism is something that like they want to realize at some point in the future. It constrains their actions in some, you know, sort of minor ways, I think around the margins. Um, but ultimately it's just like Xi Jinping doesn't wake up in the morning being like, how can we ensure that we have a political economy that responds to social need rather than the needs of capital? Like that's it's just not, that's not the sort of the day-to-day -day of governing 
uh, China. And so they've, they've kind of, you know, they're not idealists. Um, and, and so, so that, you know, that, that's one answer. There's another answer, which is the sort of, you know, the dungest turn in the late 1970s, which basically says, actually picking up on some things that, that Mao said um, e even earlier, but this idea that like, you need to grow the productive forces. We're in this primary stage uh, of socialism that without, a, without sort of productive forces established at, at some unspecified uh, level that China can't actually uh, make the transition from socialism to capitalism for all sorts of reasons, because we won't be able to sort of sustain human life at some, um, you know, uh, decent uh, level. Also, the, you know, the continual threat from imperialist powers, you know, threatening to, to take China down. And so I think that that, you know, particularly from the 19, late 1970s on that, that kind of logic kind of takes on a life of its own, right? And the sort of the, the capitalist genie is out of the bottle. And so then, you know, developing the productive forces becomes an end in itself. And the, the transition from socialism to communism gets put further and further into the, the indefinite future. Um, uh, but they have maintained a sort of a piece of ideology that comes actually totally from Mao, uh, which is that, you know, given that we are now in a socialist economy, uh, that, uh, that the working class, uh, you know, does need to be able to subordinate itself somewhat to the sort of the needs of the nation. Uh, and so I, I think that that's part of, that's part of the explanation, right? Like we have this gig economy, like on some level they understand, like the workers are not being treated well, but it is developing some sort of productive forces, right? Um, and, and so they're willing to sort of, you know, go along with it. That's one piece. There's another piece that I want to mention, which I think is really sort of significant, um, and that has to do with the sort of the ideology uh, of socialism as it as it developed, um, really as it developed in the Maoist period, and that's to make a distinction between um, sort of workers and non-workers. So, you know, I'll just give you a kind of a, an ethnographic anecdote that I think um, highlights this point. When I started doing research in, uh, in Shenzhen in the early um, 2000s, I found it really puzzling that I'd go and I'd talk to all these migrant workers, you know, people who'd come from rural areas into the city to work mostly in factories. Um, and they didn't refer to themselves as workers. They wouldn't use the, you know, the Chinese word gongren. They wouldn't say like, I'm, I'm a gongren because gongren referred to the sort of the state socialist era worker that, that worked in, in the state-owned enterprises. They had, you know, the iron rice bowl. The migrant workers, despite being in some ways a sort of a, a classical form of urban proletariat, didn't consider themselves workers. They talk about themselves as being migrant workers. They would say, you know, they would say that I dagong, right? That's the this the sort of idea of kind of like temporariness um, and not having the same social status uh, as gongren. So, so you know, if you look at the the migrant worker as a as a class. Um, within contemporary China, they have always been seen as relatively disposable and as separate from the working class. And that was true in the state socialist period as well as the contemporary period. So in the state socialist period, you'd have these temporary programs where they would bring in people from rural areas to do jobs on kind of a seasonal basis. They didn't have anywhere near the same benefits as urban workers. And when they were done with, when they were done with them in the cities, they would sort of send them back to rural areas. And, th and that kind of basic logic persisted into the period of capitalist transformation, except now, demographically speaking, that working class, the sort of nominally temporary working class, or the, the nominally temporary uh, workers actually comes to constitute the overwhelming majority of the proletariat. And the people who are working in the gig economy, 
are, I mean, that's who they are, right? They are almost exclusively rural to urban migrants, therefore seen as disposable as the state, simply not their concern. So I just, I just don't think that they see this as like a big contradiction with their vision of what socialism is to the extent that they're even really thinking hard about what is socialism. I, I, I love that interview series. I think it came out in Australian news about sort of how the Communist Party has accumulated billions of dollars in assets for party members. And I would believe a lot more, you know, in the long-term vision of, let's say, state socialism, if I saw leaders as committed as Mengju is to his workers. Uh, it's very hard for me to take any of this seriously, any of these conversations from, you know, a, a, a congressperson or a party member uh, when all of them are doing quite well and the rest of us are rioting in the streets um, and trying to find a little slice of dignity in an increasingly unequal world. So I don't know, maybe send your kids to a state college and I'd be a little bit more likely to believe you than uh, the Harvard, you know, to, to PRC, to Goldman Pipeline, I think is makes it a bit hard for me to take this seriously. You know, as, as in any like major state apparatus or any political party, like the overwhelming majority of people, like they don't care about any of this, right? Like they're just trying to get theirs. They're just trying to like make a decent life in what is admittedly like a, a challenging, unbelievably competitive society, right? And so if being a party member, if having a, you know, high level in the government affords you certain sorts of privileges, access to wealth, access to, you know, college admissions, maybe not international college admissions, but, you know, certainly domestically, you know, these, these sorts of, um, they take advantage of it. And like, if, if there's a contradiction, like at some level, because like, you know, Marx didn't think that you should, uh, you know, you should get your kid into the best possible high school possible. Uh, like they, they, that does not, it just doesn't keep them up at night. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that's not where they're at. Um, I, you know, I think occasionally it does get to be sort of a problem. Like there, there are some old elements uh, within the party that, uh, that don't like the kind of the brutal exploitation that China's working class is, is subjected to. You know, two years ago when there was that movement of students uh, that went to the JSIC factory in Shenzhen and were sort of avowedly Marxist and praising Mao and all this and the government still just cracked down on them brutally. Like, there were, I, I can guarantee you that there were people within the party who felt uncomfortable about that. But it's just, you know, it's just not where most people are at. Um, and, and like, that's, that's just an absolute reality. To, to put some meat on the bones that are being overworked in this gig economy, um, I think it would be helpful to explain the conditions that delivery drivers or individuals who work for algorithmic bosses, similar to sort of an Amazon where you're, you know, you're wearing the dystopian RoboCop gear that tracks your hand movements and, you know, tracks how many steps you take. Um, could you discuss it, and for everyone, I'll link to it in the show notes, but Chuang's translation of the Ren Wu article is outstanding um, to the point where they got an NPR citation. And if anyone clicks on that link and explores Chuang, we'll see how long that citation link lasts in, in Emily Fung's great article. Um, could you discuss a bit about, you know, this, what a, a worker like Mengju had to face daily in terms of algorithmic bosses? The, the, the brutal conditions in terms of just, uh, what is it, smiling moments, having to stop in the middle of like torrential downpours or sandstorms to take a picture of yourself smiling. 
um, you know, racing through traffic, the thousands of drivers killed. Can you discuss a bit about what it means to be a gig economy worker that would be so unpleasant and degrading that a, a movement like Mengju's uh, or an organizer like Mengju could emerge? Definitely. So, you know, the, the exact definition of the gig economy is subject uh, to debate in China and, and internationally. Um, I'd mostly like to focus on, on food delivery workers, um, in part because that's what Mengju did for work. Um, and also because I've uh, been doing some research um, on this myself. Um, it's actually research that's led by uh, a really remarkable undergrad student of mine uh, named uh, Chushuan uh, Liu, and we've been, we're actually about to publish an article on this. Uh, and, and we focused on, on Olama. So there are two main food delivery companies, yeah. in China, Olama and Meituan. Uh, together, they account for almost the entirety of uh, the platform-based food delivery market uh, in China. And, and we just focused on Olama. So like that, that's the sort of the, the basis of my knowledge that I feel like most confident speaking about. There are other, you know, there's, there's ride hailing apps, there's, you know, couriers, uh, package deliver, uh, um, you know, couriers who are delivering packages and parcels and, and whatnot. Um, all of those are a little bit different, although there, there are some, some commonalities, but I, I feel most comfortable sort of talking about the stuff um, that I and, and Chushan have um, researched together. So, you know, there's, I mean, there's a whole series of problems, but let me just try to break down the basic structure uh, of work within Olama. So you do have algorithmic control, but it's important to understand that for Olama, um, which is where Mengju worked, a huge portion of uh, the, the workers, they're not usually formal employees, which is to say that they don't have labor contracts. They don't have the same sort of you know, legal protections and, and benefits that a, that, a, that a formal employee would have. There's a, there's a division between the people who are delivering packages between the so-called crowdsourced workers uh, and uh, the station-based workers. And I'll, I'll describe what the station-based workers are in a moment. The crowd, the crowdsource workers are the ones that we more typically think of when we're thinking about uh, sort of gig economy workers. So this is the, um, you know, where this is where the, the worker and the platform have kind of a direct and unmediated relationship, which is to say that like, you know, you have a motorbike, uh, you can get the app and you sign up and it's, it's like relatively easy. And then the way you the way you work is you open up the app, and um, you sign in, and uh, orders are distributed directly from the algorithm to riders within a given area. They do the deliveries, and, and I can walk through some of the issues that they face in a moment. That's one kind of worker, but actually, that's kind of inadequate. They they realize that it's not reliable enough to be able to guarantee that they're going to be able to deliver food uh, within the sort of the very tight. Uh, time frame that that the company promises to restaurants. So the other form uh, of work, which um, is in some ways more significant, certainly equally significant, is the so-called station-based um, uh, form of employment. So within, uh, so Olama will draw a city, will will um, sort of divide a city into these these so-called business circles. And within business circles, you'll have um, you know in, in a city like Beijing you'll have like 300 restaurants or something within one of these business circles, at least in the, in the core part of the city. And you'll have a number of stations. These stations then are essentially labor subcontractors. So they have uh, an employment relationship, oftentimes not formalized in a contract, but they will be responsible for labor recruitment. And, and they have anywhere from 10 to, you know, it can be more than hundred 
uh, uh, couriers that are working within that station. So when an order comes in to a station, the station manager, and this is a human, a human manager, determines who's going to be given the order, right? And they, you know, they have information on sort of where the couriers are uh, and, and, and their availability. They have all kinds of stats uh, that they use to sort of evaluate their own couriers, but they can also be kind of, you know, they're human, so they can be sort of petty and vindictive and sort of say like, oh, you know, this courier was like, you know, uh, wasn't adequately respectful to me the last time uh, I ran into them, and so I'm going to give it to someone else. And the reason that you have these uh, sort of two different modes of delivery um, is basically because the, the, the station-based forms are more uh, reliable. So when a restaurant is registering with Olama, they have to decide whether they're going to go with station-based forms of delivery or crowdsourced forms of delivery. And it costs more to be able to use the station-based form of delivery because the stations sort of guarantee a certain time frame and they can require that their couriers are signed in for X number of hours per day, right? So they can give them sort of set working hours and say, you have to be signed into the app between you know, this hour and that hour. Whereas the crowdsource, it's kind of dependent on the fact that you have this vast kind of surplus labor and you just kind of hope that people are gonna be signed into the app. And then at any given time, you know, there'll be enough riders such that you can distribute an order and, and get it delivered in time. So it's typically the sort of like lower end mom and pop restaurants that will use the crowdsourced form of delivery and the higher end chain restaurants or you know just restaurants that generate more revenue that will use the station-based form uh, of delivery. Now, I hope this is like not too much detail, but it is really important because like when you're on the streets and you see these like Alamo drivers that are wearing these blue uniforms, you kind of assume like, oh, like they're all just dealing with like the same algorithm. And that's not, that's not the case, right? Because the, the, the crowdsource workers are, you know, it, it's very hard to determine exactly like what percentage of the workforce they are, but somewhere, you know, somewhere around 50% of the workforce. Um, so that's the, that's the kind of basic setup of the sort of the structure of the industry. I thought that was a good overview um, uh, for us to then go into the lived conditions of these workers that would lead to someone like a Mengju organizing. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the main issue that workers face um, is that they don't have enough time and they don't make enough money. And, you know, th these are things that are common for lots of different kinds of workers. Um, you know, with respect to the um, not having enough money, uh, a couple of years ago when, when the industry started to develop, they, there was a lot of noise on the internet that you could make like 10,000 yuan a month in big cities doing delivery work, um, which was, you know, like more than double, uh, you know, kind of like average wages. Like it was, you know, it was, it was seen as like a, a, a good job. And what's happened over the last couple of years is that uh, workers are given a piece rate and uh, the piece rate has, has sort of steadily declined, right? So this is true for both Olama and Meituan. They had this big push. They wanted to bring in a lot of workers. And this was particularly true during, during COVID when they were adding you know, hundreds of thousands uh, of workers in, in a, short, uh, a very short period of time. Uh, and they wanted to sort of pull them in with, with uh, the allure of, of high piece rates now that they have a huge workforce, and the most recent number I saw was that Olamo and Meituan together have 7 million people working for them, so it's massive. Um, they've gradually sort of lowered and lowered uh, the piece rates that they're getting. So, so that's one issue. The other issue is that there's, um, uh, particularly for the station-based form of workers, um, there's all kinds of um, 
you know, kind of arbitrary fines that the, that management can can impose on them. Like if if they're not logged into the app a sufficient number of hours per day, they can uh, you know they can be fined things. If they are late uh, delivering the orders, uh, that can uh, result in various kinds of arbitrary fines. And workers, by and large, have found that these these arbitrary fines have been increasing in frequency, um, and and also the sort of the scope um, has increased. Uh, so their, their, their overall wages uh, have fallen. Related to this issue of, uh, of the falling wages is the, the unbelievable time pressures um, that they're under, right? So the app sort of guarantees uh, a certain delivery time. And, and there's this complexity, right? Because the app has to deliver a, um, a, a delivery time to the customers. The customer signs on, they, they want to know when are they going to get their food. When the customer orders a food on the app, the order doesn't go, the order first, you know, has to go to the restaurant, right? And so the restaurant has to prepare the food. And so you have delivery workers, and this has often been a source of conflict, delivery workers kind of going to the restaurant and the clock is ticking and they're like, where's my order? Right. And the workers in the restaurant are also under all kinds of pressure because, you know, I mean, I've worked in a restaurant, lots of people have worked in the restaurant, you know what it's like, even, even like a, a restaurant in like a small town uh, oftentimes operates under a lot of pressure. So if you're in a place like Beijing, it's, it can be very intense. And so this creates this kind of like lateral conflict, you know, between within the working class, between the delivery workers and the cooks in the kitchen, which I just find, you know, really unfortunate. Then the delivery, then, you know, you get the food and you have to deliver it. And this is, you mentioned uh, the traffic accidents. Um, you know, workers, uh, or the, the, the couriers have to figure out how to get from the restaurant to the delivery point in, in the sort of minimum amount of time. So one of the key things that delivery workers have to figure out, and this is one of the reasons why some people prefer the, the station-based uh, kind of work, which is limited in ge geographic scope, is because it allows them to learn the streets um, and they can learn sort of shortcuts because if you just follow the GPS, a lot of drivers will tell you um, that it's... Uh, you know, there are faster ways than the GPS will tell you to go. Um, but it also leads them to taking all kinds of risks, right? And running red, red lights and, you know, violating traffic rules. This brings them sometimes into conflict um, with, uh, with the police. It oftentimes brings them, brings them into conflict with other drivers and with pedestrians. Uh, you know, there's reports of, of couriers kind of driving on sidewalks and things like that. And then the final kind of um, conflict-laden step in this whole uh, delivery route is when they get to the place where the delivery is supposed to happen. Now, you know, for people who are familiar with the architecture of Chinese cities, a lot of these, um, a lot of apartment buildings and, uh, and office buildings are kind of within these complexes that are gated, right? So um, it's the same, same for universities, right? So if you're, if you're trying to make a delivery at Peking University, you get to the front gate and uh, you can't like take your bike, you can't just take your bike and like go in within the university and, and go specifically to the, the building where you need to make the delivery. And the same is true, you know, uh, oftentimes in, in a lot of these apartment complexes, you get there and there's all kinds of conflicts between drivers and security guards who don't want you to be able to just sort of move freely within that space. And the whole, you know, the whole architecture of Chinese cities is, is sort of designed to be able to prevent the sort of free flow of movement and, and to be able to police movement. And so this system kind of really um, comes into conflict uh, with that in, in all sorts of ways. And so if you can get through that, you can actually get to the door and you make the delivery. There's yet another possibility of conflict with the customer, right? If the customer doesn't hear you knock, there's a whole series of things that you have to do or you have to text them and you have to call them. 
And if the customer complains, I mean, there, there are endless reports of, you know, of drivers doing all of the things that they said that they were supposed to do, got there in time, delivered the food, but the customer can still make, make whatever kind of complaint they want. If you accumulate a very small number of complaints per month, that oftentimes will lead you to having, you know, your pay doctor being levied fines. So there's just, there's just like myriad points where this very sort of tightly coordinated logistic chain uh, can, can kind of go awry. And the risk is all pushed down to the bottom. It's all pushed down onto the courier from the platform, sometimes through these labor subcontracting um, stations and then you know, down uh, onto the courier. And, and, and so the consequence is that they're working insane hours under dangerous conditions with all kinds of possibilities for conflict with different actors. And now they're doing it for, you know, for pretty low pay. So to turn to the individual Mengju who tried to organize uh, his fellow workers to ad- address some of these um, structural violences of, of China's gig economy, I suppose um, it would be helpful to get sort of a timeline of uh, his arrest and then from your expertise, um, perhaps talking, I know it's a bit of a black box about why he was arrested. I know, I believe in 2016, he was arrested once. Um, but the, uh, it seems at least from the reporting I've read that the party viewed him as a much bigger threat. Um, so could, could you talk a bit about, um, I guess, and I know Mengju has done a few interviews um, as well um, for Chinese speakers. Uh, you can find interviews of him. But could you talk a bit about what led him to become an organizer and how he frames sort of, I guess, the mental health aspects of this work? What what drove him to organization, as well as just a, a timeline of, of his arrest? Well, well, it's still sort of fresh in my mind. I just want to mention, uh, I think the podcast you're referring to where he did an interview is called uh, Da Gong Tan. And for those of you who are Chinese speakers, I really recommend uh, checking out that podcast. They do all kinds of really great stuff, uh, including an interview that they did with Mengju um, sometime, I think, in the fall of last year. I can't can't quite remember. Uh, but it, it's, it's it, you know... I listened to that podcast as soon as I finished listening to it, I was just like, oh man, this guy's going to end up in jail. Um, because he was talking about, uh, you know, he was talking about a first, ar- a first arrest he had, uh, I believe it was in 2018 actually, um, for, for organizing, you know, some kind of a small scale protest and he did a month in jail. And, you know, here he is on the podcast, just like talking about it sort of openly and, and completely unapologetically. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's kind of testament to his character and like, there, I mean, there are activists like this who, I mean, I've had people sort of describe it to me. I, I, I don't have this, but I've heard people sort of describe it as like, a, as it's just like a, you just have to do it, right? Like the, the, you see an injustice and like, you just like act and the sort of the risks are just like not part of the calculation. And, and I really, I don't know how someone ends up like this. Like, I, I don't, I, frankly, I don't know all of the details of his biography that sort of led him from, uh, the the rural part of Guizhou uh, in, in in southwestern uh, China, uh, which is his hometown, to being um, this kind of one of the very few labor leaders uh, in, in China. I, 
I don't know all of, all of the details, but what, what is clear to me based on the sort of the information that I've seen from his videos that he posts online from that, um, that podcast interview that, that you mentioned is that he's just, he's just fearless. He sees uh, these companies who are taking advantage of their workers systematically. And he also came to understand, and I don't think, you know, this was certainly not through sort of academic, um, uh, wasn't, it wasn't an academic process. Um, he just came to understand through his own practical experience that the way to address this was by cohering collective power for workers. And so he tried to sort of figure out, and I would love to be able to interview him myself and find out kind of how he figured all of this out. But, you know, he, he sort of took the resources that he had uh, available to him, which was first talking to the drivers sort of in his area and then setting up these social media accounts. Um, you know, he had these groups on WeChat. He had uh, his the Billy Billy uh, video um, that he would, uh, you know, he would regularly update where he would do these. I mean, again, totally fearless, just like putting his face out there and being like, here's the problem with the industry. And there he is sort of saying it into the camera. Um, and, and, you know, he, he gains notoriety. So, you know, a moment ago, I, I, I said that um, he's one of the few labor leaders in, in China. I mean, the state has systematically uh, tried to nip in the bud the development of any kind of organic labor leadership. You have the All China Federation of Trade Unions and the official trade union structure that's completely disconnected from workers and workers don't sort of recognize us as their representative. And anytime you get folks like Mengju that kind of pop up, they get hammered down pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, I, I've been nervous about him uh, for a while. Uh, and sure enough, um, on, on February 25th, uh, he was uh, he was detained in Beijing, um, you know, was in prison for a while, um, and then eventually was given the charge of um, picking quarrels uh, and provoking trouble. Um, uh, you or your listeners may be familiar with this. This is just the the charge that the Chinese government gives to activists when there's actually no legal basis for uh, for charging them, um, and so you know that's where he's at now. Um, he's in jail. He's he's facing these charges, uh, and you know we'll see what happens. I mean, there's no chance that he will have a sort of a a fair shake in court, um, which is part of the reason why you know folks are trying to sort of mobilize internationally and and bring some attention to this. Uh, because, you know, sort of some, some kind of external pressure, you know, might be able to change the situation. When you look at Mengju's uh, organizing, which does, I think, to anyone who's been following the farmers' protests in India uh, with uh, the communal meals set up by Sikhi farmers where anyone can go eat. If people have been following the Black Lives Matter protests, I interviewed a mutual aid collective called Riot Ribs, where they would go and they would feed any protesters who were standing up to uh, police violence uh, in Portland, Oregon, um, and from uh, communal pantries now emerging in the Philippines where COVID-19 has ravaged um, that country. Uh, mutual aid has really emerged uh, for uh, a lot of us as um, what we turn to in an era where governments uh, increasingly are abandoning, abandoning um, what I'm sure internally they talk about as surplus populations, people who cannot be absorbed into uh, the economy. And um, just very briefly, Labor Notes 
uh, in reporting about uh, Meng Ju's case, uh, was saying, you know, he had these, um, he would set up free legal consultations, he would figure out ways to provide uh, workers with the ability to negotiate or mediate disputes between some of these layers of conflict that you were talking about with restaurants, uh, with cooks or security guards. Um, he would even find people free or cheap accommodations uh, when they first arrived in Beijing. A lot of the labor force, or maybe all of the labor force, not all, but majority of these drivers are migrants. So they're not familiar with Beijing. He would figure out ways to get them uh, housing. He even organized a monthly collective dinner uh, with the delivery workers. Um, so I know you're a, you're, you've, you're a seasoned scholar of labor activism. Is this sort of mutual aid um, something new? Has this been a longstanding practice for those who are on the margins of, um, of the economy? And how do you see this within the larger framework of, of this sort of these global movements that are popping up where mutual aid seems like a staple for people who are trying to face the state or uh, the state has shrunk to the point where they have no other, no way of receiving help. They only can help each other. Um, so what, what do you think about this in the context of China, these techniques of mutual aid and globally, how have they, how have they resonated or struck a chord with you as a scholar? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think um, it's really it's a really great point. Like thinking about this as mutual aid makes a lot of sense to me, um, e even though I had not sort of thought of it in precisely that way before. And and just sort of pointing, just emphasizing a couple of points that I think were already embedded in your question. You know, these are workers who have been completely abandoned by the state, right? So if you're working without a labor contract, that means you have sort of no right to a sort of legal adjudic adjudication of labor conflicts. It means that you don't have social insurance, which means, you know, no health insurance. Oftentimes, the, you know, the only kind of insurance that workers will have will be sort of a minimal uh, kind of accident insurance. Um, so they're incredibly vulnerable, uh, you know, from the state's perspective uh, and from, from their employer's uh, perspective, right? They don't have any kind of like socialized uh, forms uh, of protection. Um, so, you know, th that, that kind of situation in lots of places, as you've just mentioned, right, globally, produces a kind of a mutual aid response. The problem is that, you know, we don't even have in China the sort of, um, well, I, as I'm thinking this through, I might want to qualify it a little bit. But like, you know, in, in some countries, certainly in, in the United States and in other places, you can have the kind of the neoliberal version of, of mutual aid. Right, which is to say, the state's like, well, we're not going to do this for you. You guys, if you want to take care of it yourself, like, you know, we're not going to intervene. Um, so, so there's that version as opposed to the, the the mutual aid, which is, you know, sort of taking care of your community, but is also antagonistic to the to state and capital in some sort of way. But in China, it's really even particularly among migrant workers, any kind of um, Constant, any kind of social constitution can be seen as potentially threatening. And I'll give you just one other example, uh, which is, and then, and then I'll circle back to Mengju. If you, if you look at the migrant worker schools, the children, uh, schools for the children of migrant workers who've been excluded from public education system in the city because they don't have the local huko, the local household registration in the cities, you know, they, they, they build these schools. It, it's, you can think of it, I, I, 
as a form of mutual aid. Sometimes they're kind of predatory businesses, but sometimes they're more mutual aid-like. Um, and in Beijing, you know, you've seen dozens, if not hundreds of these just bulldozed by the state uh, over the past decade. Um, so, you know, that, that's one example. And then another is, uh, you asked if there's any precedent for the kind of stuff that he was doing. Well, there is, I mean, you've had a lot of labor NGOs, which is the term that they use to refer to themselves, particularly in, in Guangdong province in Shenzhen, Guangzhou, Dongguan, those areas, um, beginning in the mid 2000s. And they did a lot of kind of mutual aidy kind of work where they would set up, you know, free like libraries or reading rooms. They would, they would have karaoke night. In some cases, they would have these, you know, kind of cooperative shops where, you know, there's, there'd be clothes, like clothes donations. Um, there would be food events, things like that. You know, it's not, in my view, the sort of ideal form of mutual aid because oftentimes they were supported by foundations and oftentimes foreign foundations, which is what eventually got them in trouble with the Chinese government and, and they were um, mostly shut down after 2015. But there is, you know, there is some history of, of migrant workers being totally excluded from social protections in the cities and trying to figure out things um, on their own. And Mengju is like, you know, he's a shining example of this. I mean, all of the things that they that that he's tried to organize, uh, uh, the, the things that you mentioned, you know, I mean, fixing, you know, driving across the city to to fix, uh, <clears throat> um, you know, to help a, a courier fix their bike or or whatever it is. I mean, just even just these communal meals. I mean, these are these are heroic things. This is mutual aid, but for him, it's not. It really is not that kind of, in my view, anyway, the neoliberal version of mutual aid. He's interested in cohering a community to be able to exercise political power, right? He wants to create a sense of sort of common identification and a common mission. And he's very explicit about this to be able to collectively impose their demands on their employer. And he said that that's the only way that all of these egregious labor conditions uh, that, you know, that I've just described will be able to be changed. And I mean, that was really the, I know I keep talking about like how worried I've been about this guy for, for a long time, but I, I just, I, I actually posted this on Twitter when I first saw it, he, he did this video and he said, well, what we need is a union-like organization. He didn't say we need an independent union, but he said we need a union-like organization to be able to, um, to, be able to, to, to bargain uh, with our employers. Um, and that's just, that's just something that the Chinese government cannot accept because it is antagonistic to capital and uh, of course, um, you know, the, the sort of conflicts that they're having, having with Jack Ma and Alibaba notwithstanding, Alibaba is the owner of, of Oloma. Um, you know, they, the, the Chinese government sort of inherent impulses is, is to side with, with employers against the workers. Um, and so, you know, the, the form of mutual aid that he, he took um, ended up being very dangerous. And this is a just a very quick meta question about academia and um, why I've mostly turned away from things like uh, Jacobin. Um, I like Spectre. I think they're okay because they're very internationalist. But I don't, you know, like Jane McAlevey, I, I, I'm going to bed. It, I just, I've really become very turned off from the fact that very few academics do what you do, which is centering the voices of people actually uh, of the class of laborers who are actually doing things. And um, I'm just wondering from, from studying labor in China and from being on the ground and centering these voices, without 
slandering any of your colleagues, I can do that because I'm not an academic. <laughs> but um, without without slandering anyone and, and being in good faith where hopefully we all want to build a better world, why are you like the only one talking about this? And, and I know, okay, it's a China issue, but whatever. I don't see a lot of the elevation of, of just individuals. And a lot of this conversation has been about, wow, what a brave and interesting person this was. And so much of academia to me as a layman just seems like these theories where we can talk all day and then it's time to go to bed and nothing ever actually gets done. So I guess for you in terms of the world you want to build and how do we go from just talking about these issues to doing like what Mengju does did and actually do them? And do you see a tension in academia where to do that, you're going to have to take some risks. And it seems like we're in a world where, like it or not, you know, we're going to have to embrace risk a lot more as activists. Um, so I, I don't know. I guess just how has Mengju made you reflect on academia and what for me as a layperson, just talking to you, it's I'm shocked that conversations like this aren't more commonplace and someone like this isn't more well-known and that more of us aren't doing what Mengju did. Instead, we're just sort of, we're just talking about, you know, Marx still. <laughs> yeah i mean man that's it, it's a it's a huge question um you, you know academia has all kinds of pathologies uh some of which can be you know written off to sort of individuals being careerist and whatnot i mean you know there, there are real if you're going to succeed as an academic whatever that means um there are just there are institutional constraints on, on what you can do. I mean, this is me trying to be as generous as possible to uh, overly uh, academic uh, academics uh, who don't sort of see a, a role for themselves in, in social struggle. And you know, and this is definitely not to sort of pat myself on the back. I, I mean, I have to say, like, I sometimes I think of my work as having kind of like two connected but pretty distinct currents, which is like. I do my academic work. That academic work has to be academic. Like that's my job. You know, like a factory worker has their job. They show up. They go to the factory, and if they want to be a labor organizer after after work, you know, they can they can do that as well. So, and obviously, I'm not a factory worker, <laughs> but I have a job, and like I have to do that job. So that that requires getting published in academic journals, and you know, but. I think that it also, the, the thing that is distinct about being an academic is that it does, um, you know, for better or worse, it gives you some sort of a platform. It gives you the capacity to speak, um, you know, to powerful people. They will take you not very seriously. I don't think anyone takes me very seriously. Uh, but like, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned Emily Fung's piece, like NPR calls me up and, and wants to know like what I think about this. Uh, this labor conflict that's happening in a different part of the world, um, and so I, I think that I think that we do have some sort of a responsibility to sort of be involved in social struggle. Now, there's another sort of piece to this, which is um, you know what social struggles to be involved with, and I don't think that one, you know, I, I mean I'm an internationalist. I have like my own bizarre sort of life path that led me to. Uh, you know, to, to studying the Chinese labor movement and feeling, you know, deep sort of personal conviction about it. But I, you know, I sometimes will get kind of like well-meaning liberals, I'll, I'll give a talk and like well-meaning well liberals will be like, what can we do for the Chinese workers? And, you know, my answer is always just like, I mean, look, if you want to like learn Chinese, 
like move to China and like immerse yourself in the struggle. Like, you know, you, you can try to do that. That's extremely difficult. But I think that the more, the more powerful thing to do is to just sort of figure out what social struggle you can, you can sort of play a meaningful role in. Right. And maybe that maybe that's sort of right on your campus. You know, your camp, your university is sort of investing in developing some technology for the Department of Defense that's being used to, you know, bomb people in, in, in Pakistan or whatever it is. Organize against that. Right. Like <laughs> there's lots of points of entry for 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 creating uh, for trying to, you know, create a better world for trying to uh, destroy the, the, the kind of the monstrous world uh, that we currently live in and, and build something better uh, in its place. Um, and, uh, but, but those kinds of activities, again, institutionally, academia just doesn't, it doesn't reward that, right? So if, if you want to take that upon yourself, you can do so, but it, it, it does to a certain extent, unfortunately, I think, draw away from the sort of the professional, um, carrots that are sort of, uh, out there, um, you know, dangling for you. And, and so, uh, you know, I hope I don't sound defensive about this or like, you know, trying to defend my colleagues who are, who are not sort of as engaged in, in struggles as, as sometimes I would like them to be. But like it, it's, you know, there, there are real constraints. Is it okay to just not know what you're doing, but just like Mengju sort of say, this is wrong. I'm going to do something about it, which I guess if you tried to sit down and talk to Mengju about what, like, what, like Grundisi or that book Marx wrote that no one can pronounce, Grund, Grunder... You'll pronounce it correctly. Um, If I, he'd go, what the hell are you talking about? But if I tried to, you know, if I actually took a holistic approach at what he's doing, it's probably far more impactful than, you know, a scholar who's going to sit down and research that book for the rest of their life. Um, I guess, what is it okay to not know what you're doing, but just to do something, which is, I think, the central tension of that academic question and then to this larger point, you mentioned liberals saying, how can I help workers in China? Chuang, who did do that rare thing of, I'm going to go learn Chinese and center myself, you know, in the Chinese labor struggle. When I interviewed them, they were like, no, what you need to do is, uh, I'm going to swear here, fuck shit up, you know, where you are. Because as Chuang has articulated, and I think uh, the the um, rebel academic, I don't know what they would call themselves, Christopher Wong uh, has articulated uh, in interviews, um, global elite capitalism is all connected. Um, Chinese elites and U.S. elites are, you know, at a club somewhere making it rain, metaphorically. I don't know if that's what they do at Davos, if there's a room for that, the make it rain room. But um, if you want to f- help Chinese workers, you help U.S. workers, because all this global neoliberal capitalism, blah, 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 is all connected. So, I guess, could you talk a bit about this? Should we be doing things, maybe the more brainy Velma side of the Scooby-Doo gang of leftism? Should we be doing things a bit more in our communities without necessarily saying, oh, is this connected to Poliani or Marx or so on? And then to those well-meaning people, if we want to help Chinese workers, should we be helping U.S. workers and so on? I mean, you know, the the question about the relationship between theory and practice is obviously an old one, and I think the basics have not really changed, which is that, um, you know, theory abstracted from practice is is meaningless, right? I mean, that's the sort of the, you know, the 11th thesis on Feuerbach, right? The philosophers have only interpreted the world, the point is to change it. I mean, 
that's not to say that theory is insignificant. And actually, I mean, if you look at that particular thesis in Marx, I mean, one way of interpreting it is it's dialectically, right? Which is to say that, yeah, you have practice that generates new theories, but you have theories that also change the way that we perceive the world and can redirect uh, practice to sort of recreate a new world that couldn't have been imagined before, that couldn't have possibly even been theorized. So, you know, I, I'm like, like, does Mengju need to be reading, you know, like all, all the volumes of Capital? Would that make him a better activist? Absolutely not. You know, like he, he has a sense of, he's indignant, right? He understands, you know, the sort of the, the core, what I think to be the sort of the core problem is he understands social domination. And sometimes social domination manifests as, you know, as in racism in, in the United States, sometimes it manifests as like, you know, sort of patriarchy, patriarchal relations within the family. And sometimes it, it manifests itself as capital dominating labor within the workplace. And like, he just, he like, like all great labor activists just like feels that at a deep and intuitive level and, and he hates it and he wants to destroy it. And he wants a workplace that is not predicated uh, on that form of domination. And like, you don't need, you don't need to read, you know, you don't need to read theory to sort of get that. You might, you know, and and most most sort of organizers like that. That's just like not the best use of their time is to like, you know, get deep into the the sort of the Marxology and reading footnotes and whatnot. Um, you know, that being said, theory theory can be useful. It can be, and it can be sort of recreated in a way uh, that that is sort of accessible enough that can expand people's horizons, right? So, you know, one of the the lessons that I think that you can take away since we're talking about Marx, you know, that you can take away from, um, from capital is the, the sort of the universality of capitalism that even, even if, which is not to say that capitalism is reproduced in precisely the same way in every place and every, you know, every historical time period, it certainly is not. There's all kinds of uh, important variation, but to understand that there's some sort of common substance between uh, work, you know, the sort of the working class that we can find uh, points of convergence and similarly that we can find a common enemy, right? So, you know, if, if, if you, you sort of trace the financial, um, if you trace the sort of the lines of, of financing and capital investment from companies that are exploiting workers in China, you will find all kinds of connections to companies that are exploiting workers in the United States or in, in Japan or in India or, 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 or anywhere. So having that sort of sense that there is, that there's that, that kind of, that point of commonality, right? That there's this thing called value and, and the sort of, that that is being stolen from workers all over the world. That can then push you to being an internationalist, right? So for, again, like we have someone confronting their particular employer as a food delivery worker in China, they might sort of at the end of the day say, well, I'm gonna take care of this and then you know, my, my problem is, is solved. That's a pretty narrow vision of, of social emancipation. When you have this more capacious you know, internationalist vision that you know, my emancipation, my freedom uh, is dependent not just on myself getting free, not just on my coworkers getting free or even sort of my fellow citizens of this particular country. No, like we all have to get free together. Right, and, and so I think that theory can be useful in kind of bridging that divide. You know, the party, if the, okay, the party's gonna keep putting Steve Jobs books in the, in the bookstores, and there's not gonna be books of Mengju. He's gonna keep being an antagonist rather than a hero. Um, is this the view that the public shares? 
So, okay, I get it. Okay, let's we'll keep putting uh, Jack, maybe not Jack Ma anymore, but Bezos or whoever, you know, whatever billionaire writes a book. Musk, I'm sure, is quite popular in Chinese bookstores now. Um, we're going to keep putting those books in the bookstores. But on the Chinese internet, at least, from the uh, reporting I've read, you know, you have figures like Che Guevara, QIE, <laughs> Guevara, uh, stealing bicycles, who is being memed into like Aquaman movie posters. You have um, workers and people on the internet calling themselves Da Gongren as a way, maybe not to show solidarity, but to express a disdain for the Chinese dream of, you know, working, Jojo uh, Leo, working uh, um, these incredibly long hours. You have huge interest in a piece on delivery drivers in Renwu magazine. You have a huge outpouring of public anger uh, at the tech worker who died at Pindodo from overwork. Um, so, okay, the party is trying to project one view of, of billionaires, and it's gone away from Jack Ma moonwalking on a stage. I don't think if they tried that now, um, that would get the same you know, uh, rapturous applause. I think it would actually be met with a chorus of booze and maybe rotten vegetables. So the party's trying to project, what is the party trying to project now if it can't use, you know, just sort of grotesque wealth as a motivation for the Chinese dream? And do you think there's potential for the workers at, let's say, uh, 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 Alibaba or Pinduoduo or Meituan the people who are designing these algorithms to more and more, in fact, see themselves as not being separate or better, but just like the delivery drivers, that they're all workers. Um, what cultural opportunities do you see for solidarity and how is the party trying to culturally obfuscate or destroy this potential coming together of workers from different classes? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an awesome question. Um, you know, I just got to put my cards on the table, which is to say that I haven't been in China for a while. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I haven't been there now for more than two years to, to mainland China anyway, I was in Hong Kong. Um, so I, I feel like this this is the kind of question that like, you know, you, you can get some feel from on the internet, but like, it's the kind of thing that I, I you know, I'm an ethnographer, I like talking to people. I feel like you can, you can sort of get at forms of meaning when you're really sort of talking to someone sitting across the table from them in a way that you can't from looking at, uh, you know, posts on, on Weibo or, or Weixin or what have you. So, um, so, you know, that's just a, as a way of sort of defending myself. Saying I, don't, I don't actually know the answer. Um, but that being said, there are reasons both for uh, pessimism uh, and optimism. I mean, the sort of the pessimism is, is I think, the sort of the obvious point, which is that, you know, the Chinese government, and this is sort of you open any kind of mainstream media, like you will see this account, they're leaning much more heavily on nationalism. They're leaning very heavily on ethno-nationalism and, and kind of a sense of, of, of racial pride about the, the, the so-called great revival of the Chinese nation, which is the slogan that, that, that Xi Jinping uses to refer to this kind of overarching China dream, right? And China's kind of standing up to the United States and throwing off you know, you know, a century and a half of, of domination by, by Western powers and all that. Um, you know, and that's a real thing, right? And sometimes you see it flare up in some really nasty ways, like uh, a couple of weeks ago when, you know, you had these foreign companies saying that they were concerned about forced labor in Xinjiang. And then, you know, all the nationalists are sort of saying, well, you know, we're going to boycott H&M and, and Burberry and, and the government kind of rallies around that. So, you know, that is a real thing, right? The ethno-nationalism 
the you know the situation in in Xinjiang, the the overt hatred of the democracy movement in in Hong Kong, uh, not to mention um, sort of people in Taiwan that they see as you know not wanting to return to the motherland. Like that that is you know the sort of this right wing nationalism is is a real current in Chinese society that needs to be taken seriously, and we need to think deeply about how to defeat it. Um, and it's being you know inculcated uh, by by the state, of course. On the other hand, I do think that they're optimistic signs, right? And I mean, these optimistic signs grow out of a sense of great despair, but you do also see this kind of cultural current among young people, um, even as you've just sort of referenced, you know, highly educated white collar workers in the big cities, people who've gone to, you know, good universities who are sort of graduating going out into the world, finding jobs more difficult to get in the first place. And then the jobs that they get, even if they're working at, you know, one of these big um, tech companies that are generating, you know, billions of dollars in revenue for their owners, that they're working insane hours, that their wages are not that good, uh, that they, you know, might never be able to afford an apartment in the city that they live, or they will have to, you know, work for, you know, decades just to be able to buy an apartment and they won't be able to do anything else. We see this, you know, dramatic reduction in, uh, in birth rates, which which is one kind of indicator about how people feel about life. Um, and you have seen interesting moments of solidarity, sort of um, cross-class kind of solidarity between kind of more white collar urban residents and, and more working class um, uh, rural to urban migrants. So just one example, and this is not exactly what, what you were talking about, but I think sort of gets at a similar dynamic. In 2017, when the Beijing government launched uh, these, these mass evictions of migrant workers um, following a fire in which uh, 19 people were killed, you know, they, they then used this as a pretext to evict um, maybe more than 100,000 people from the city. And some, in some cases, the informal housing that they were living in was just summarily demolished, people given like a day or two to, to abandon. Um, their homes. And there's actually a huge outpouring of support from kind of middle class, you know, Beijing residents trying to, you know, in some cases kind of, you know, engage in, in, in it's not exactly mutual aid, it's a little bit more um, kind of paternalistic, but, you know, setting up like soup kitchen like things and trying to find temporary housing for people and, and things like that. And, and a lot of people are writing very sympathetic things. The government hated that and they shut it all down, right? So, so they didn't like, they don't like to see that kind of cross-class alliance. In 2018, you also had this uh, this movement that I mentioned earlier about the sort of the JASIC um, workers. These are, you know, university graduates or university, some were graduates, some were currently students forming, you know, sort of solidarity with, with uh, factory workers. Um, I think that, and, and the way that they themselves described it, I mean, I've spoke to some of these workers was that, you know, we increasingly see ourselves as not that different from the working class. And so that it, it is more kind of a solidaristic form of you know shared interest rather than that kind of paternalistic like we're going to help you because you're so um you know you're so impoverished and, and and oppressed and whatever um and and some of the discussion among the tech workers you know the, the sort of the 996 stuff about overwork and and, and um you know the deaths uh, that occurred i it's a sign of optimism there, there are still just like you know massive obstacles the rural urban divide is is massive. It is a it is an entrenched kind of social divide uh, that is um, not insurmountable, but it is it is difficult to overcome. I mean, it's not as rigid as kind of a racial divide like you might have in the United States, but it takes on some similar kinds of characteristics. Um, and 
so so there there is that optimism and then I, I usually like to try to end on an optimistic note, but my, my train of thought has finally led me to a somewhat pessimistic note or just a, a sort of a note of caution, which is to say that, you know, we see these kinds of tendencies that I think could blossom in, in kind of a more interesting solidaristic kind of a direction, um, basically because of, you know, the proletarianization of white class workers. On the other hand, the state sees cross-class alliances as absolutely anathema, right? And so any effort by students to link up with, with workers, white class, you know, if you had the, the sort of the programmers from Olama or from, from Alibaba, which owns Olama, you know, trying to link up with the couriers, I mean, the, the, the government would just come down incredibly hard uh, right away. So, so the, the sort of the political risks are, are, are really sort of massive. How can we help uh, among you uh, just individually as laborers? Um, you know, in be the Bessemer election, you saw um, it wasn't reported, um, but well, but workers there who were trying to organize were holding up signs in solidarity with their counterparts in Myanmar who were striking at numerous uh, factories. How can we help in an internationalist way? Uh, Chu, and then to quote uh, Edward Ongwesso, that we need to embrace the fact that we're probably going to need both legal methods to challenge entities like uh, like uh, Alibaba or uh, U.S. government or policing globally and illegal methods. Um, so we can just leave that at wildcat strikes or what Vicky Osterweil um, euphemistically calls uh, not nonviolence. Um, in terms of her work researching groups like the Black Panthers uh, and more militant wings of the NAACP. How can we help, Mengju? And then for this final um, moment we're in of, of this Gramscian nightmare that doesn't seem to end, um, if we want to give birth to a new world, do you think that we may need to talk more about, just like Mengju did, we may have to do things that are illegal to, to give that world a chance to be born. With respect to Mengju, um, so there, there, there's some more concrete things, some sort of symbolic things. You know, concretely, I've been working with a group group of folks um, who are trying to figure out what to do in this case. And, and one of the things that um, we're trying to organize is more connections um, with food delivery workers in particular, but other sort of people in the gig economy internationally, right? So, I mean, these are workers, one of the really sort of remarkable things about um, his case, uh, but also the sort of the, the, the general conditions for food delivery workers in China is how remarkably similar they are to lots of other countries, right? So, you know, they may, may be working for Olomo or Meituan rather than, you know, DoorDash or, or Uber Eats. Um, but the sort of the basic conditions where you have this like the, the sort of the big innovation of the platform is that they figured out how, how to exploit workers more effectively, um, like that, that's precisely the same. Right. So, so, you know, if any of your listeners have ideas or good connections with some of the, the, the worker groups that have sprung up, I mean, another major similarity is that a lot of these workers are excluded from the sort of the traditional labor movement. Um, and so a lot of them have had to take similar sorts of risks. Um, to the ones that Mengju uh, and, and his colleagues did in China. Um, but if any of your listeners have connections with, with these groups um, that have sprung up, I mean, you know, we're, we're working our channels, but uh, I, I would love any, any leads on that. You know, the idea being that um, they don't exist in sort of a global supply chain where, you know, you can have these kind of international solidarity strikes that would, uh, you know, immediately put pressure on Ulama. Like that, that, you know, we don't have the capacity to do that. 
but uh, at least sort of at the sort of symbolic level, having worker to worker forms of solidarity is always more powerful than, you know, like an academic like myself who cares a lot about this stuff, but like, you know, sort of, uh, you know, someone like myself taking action on this doesn't, doesn't carry the same sort of symbolic weight. Um, you know, that being said, like anyone who, who sort of speaks about this issue, I think is, is really important. Um, and, you know, this was a, sort of a thought that occurred to me earlier um, in, in, in our conversation. Um, the international solidarity uh, efforts uh, and, and even these kind of symbolic acts of sort of saying, you know, free Mengju, right? Like going on Twitter, going, going, you know, posting a picture of yourself, uh, sort of holding a sign saying free Mengju, which is, you know, something that, that we're, we're trying to organize. You know, it feels like small and insignificant and maybe it is, and maybe he will never see that. And maybe the authorities definitely, almost definitely the authorities don't care about that. But we're also sort of targeting like the other Mengjus that are out there, right? To like let people know that if you get locked up, like there's these people on like the other side of the world who like, who care about this, right? And, and that to me is, is really important. So even if we lose this battle, it'll help inspire sort of more people to, you know, go out there and do just absolutely insane stuff that he was doing, which we all knew were, you know, could get him in trouble. But without that kind of struggle, um, you know, change uh, of course is impossible. You know, with with respect to the the second part of the question about you know the the legal bounds of of struggle, I mean, I can talk first about China. It's just not a it's just not a question. There's no such thing as a legal strike in China. In 1982, Deng Xiaoping went into the Constitution and, and removed the right to strike from the Constitution, which is kind of peculiar because they left other rights that they have no interest in enforcing um, in the Constitution. So like China still has like, you know, the right freedom of association and freedom of speech are still in, in the Constitution, but they specifically went in and they're like, right to strike, no, we're, we're taking that one out. But they're going on strike all the time. I mean, and that's one of the things that I found in this research uh, I mentioned that, I, that I've done with uh, Chu and Liu, is that there are all kinds of really small scale strikes happening among food delivery workers. Like you'll have like 12 workers, you know, in one particular station and uh, the manager's trying to like screw one of them out of their bonus. And the 12 workers just like, don't sign into the app. They just disappear. It's this kind of like invisible strike. And they're like negotiating with, you know, with management over, over the app. Um, you know, those, it's just like that kind of persistent small scale activity is the basis of any fundamental social change. All of those are, you know, they're not technically illegal, but they're definitely not legal, right? It's just, can we exercise power as workers in this situation? And the answer sometimes is, yeah, you know, the, the station is depending on us. The stations are also required to deliver the food within this very short window of time. And if we just sign out of the app altogether, there's nothing really that they can do about it. So they're able to bring their bosses uh, to the table. Um, you know, that's a very sort of small scale example. But I, I think if you allow the bounds of legality to constrain your political imagination, you're not going to do anything. And that's just as true in China as it is in the United States or, or you know, any other country around the world. So absolutely, like, you know, we need to get rowdy. The, I mean, the, the system of, uh, of labor relations, uh, again, just thinking specifically about workers, which is not to sort of minimize the, the significance of other uh, very important social struggles around the world, but the systems of labor relations and, and labor institutions that were developed in the 20th century are just utterly broken. And it's, it, this is true in China, and it's true in capitalist uh, Western countries. Um, they, they just, 
They don't, they don't play the role that they were intended to play. And the only way that you're going to be able to institutionalize a new power relationship is by workers uh, and their allies forming you know, collectivities that can exercise power against their bosses and against those bosses, allies in the state. Something that's been very interesting to watch on uh, Taiwanese sort of left media is you'll see translations of, let's say, like a Vicky Osterweil or abolitionists. And I don't think we're going to be able to address labor struggles without addressing the police. Um, and I'm wondering for you, you know, living in the U.S. and and studying the labor conditions in China under a very repressive police state and now seeing the same repressive police violence be utilized in a completely um, repressive capacity by the state where there is no negotiation seemingly. It's just uh, the billy club on your skull or the, you know, uh, if you're, if you're black getting shot for being a child. Do you feel that for more socialist or Marxist strains of activism and organizing that we need to maybe think about ways of building better bridges to abolitionism, both for China, but also just in general, as, as someone who's a very passionate um, sort of, uh, what would we say, radical scholar, or uh, someone who sees himself both researching struggle, but also being in struggle. Do you think for your colleagues or just generally, we need to figure out more ways to bring together the wisdom of, of let's say, a Marxism or socialism as it relates to these violent labor relations with the fact that we're going to have to go up against the police to change um, labor conditions globally? Yeah, 100%. I mean, you can't be a, sort of a socialist labor activist and not <laughs> demand uh, the sort of um, abolition of the police and, and the whole sort of you know car carceral system. Um, and and th there's really a sort of a very simple way to make this connection. Um, and, and this is ancient wisdom from the labor movement, which is the sort of the question of which side are you on, right? The workers go on strike and when the cops show up, who are they beating up, right? They're beating up the workers, right? They're not beating up, they're not beating up the employer. And it doesn't matter what led to the strike. Did the employer fail to pay the workers for the previous four months and they went on strike? The cops come in and they still beat the workers. And, and that's particularly true in China. That's true to some extent in the United States, sort of police violence against striking workers in the United States is, is a much less significant problem than it was, uh, say, 100 years ago when, you know, things were incredibly violent and the police and all kinds of, um, you know, sort of uh, para-police uh, kinds of organizations were deployed uh, against striking workers. Um, but but the police uh, are an organization, it doesn't matter if it's China or the United States, that are meant to use violence to uphold a particular social and economic order. And that social and economic order is capitalism, and it's particularly racial capitalism. And so it takes a different sort of character in the United States than it does in China because of our history uh, with that particular racial capitalism. You know, it, it, you don't want to sort of push the analogy as too far because they are very different, but at the sort of the periphery of China, you, the sort of the racial uh, character of uh, a Han Center capitalism comes into clearer focus, right? So when we look at the forced labor regimes that have emerged from the internment camps in Xinjiang, where you have uh, Uyghurs and other Muslims who are, who are sent um, non-voluntarily uh, to work in factories that are producing garments for transnational capital. And that's enforced through a whole sort of 
massive, you know, carceral logic of the sort of the internment camps and the way that they operate in relationship to actual prisons, as well as the sort of the police and the surveillance system uh, that is that is in place uh, to monitor them, to monitor them and control them. So, you know, the logics are different. The sort of the racial dynamics are are, are very different, but you can still see that there are connections between upholding a particular racial order and upholding um, the order of capitalism. And so you can't, workers can't get free as long as there is a, a cop there uh, who's going to sort of beat you up when you step out of line. Eli, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I hope you found this conversation uh, generative and, and useful. I always enjoy speaking with you. Um, could you say once again, any resources you'd like to center for um, Mengju or workers in China? There's a Twitter account uh, that is providing regular updates on it. Uh, the handle is F Guo Jiang. Um, I'll spell that out. It's F G U O J I A N G. And that's kind of the, the main source of information internationally uh, in English. Um, and so, yeah, you can, you can get stuff there. Um, and um, yeah, that, that, that's the main thing for now.